If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 44, and we're going to continue where we were from just where we picked off, picking off from where we were last week. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20, Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 20. <clears throat> if you remember just the context of this passage, God's people are in exile, they're in Babylon, and they were exiled because of their own sin. They're in exile because they rebelled against God, they neglected God, they had taken God for granted. And they, had, they failed to recognize the privilege they had of knowing God, of being in covenant with him. And because of this, God removes his hand of protection from them. And they fell. They were, they were allowed to experience the, the consequences of their sin. And they fell to the pagan empire of, of Babylon. Last week, we looked at the first five verses of this chapter. And we saw really God's gracious and, and amazing promises to his people. His promises that he would pour out his spirit, not only on them, but on their children on, uh, because of his covenant. And, and these people were in exile. They really faced, as we talked about last week, the very real possibility that they would cease to exist as a people. But God makes this promise that not only will they not cease to exist, that he promises that their children will be numerous and that they will be faithful and that they will know him. They will have his spirit on them. Well, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see a contrast. God sets this contrast between himself, the true, the living God, who has called him, who has made this gracious promise, and he makes a contrast with idols, with worthless idols, idols that the people chose over God, and idols that had led the people astray, led them into bondage to sin, and and led them into the suffering that they were experiencing in exile. And as I read this, notice that in the first few verses, six, verses 6 to 8. These are about God. These are talking about our covenant-keeping God. And then it shifts in verse, uh, verses 9 through 20. It talks about idols, and it talks about the utter stupidity of following idols. And you can notice that these verses just, just drip with sar- sarcasm, as, as he's basically mocking the people and, and the, the utter stupidity, really, of following uh, these idols. So Isaiah chapter 44, starting at verse 6, going to verse 20. You're now the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you, have, you are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither sees nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be set to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. 
He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For their eyes, he has shut their eyes, so that they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half it have I burned in the fire. I have also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a passage that really touches each one of us. We are all driven to idols. We are all attracted to idols. We all rebel against you. We follow the things we can see, the shiny things we can touch, and we forget you. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit to preach these words. Each one of us needs your Spirit to open our hearts because we are dull, just like the people we're being spoken of in this passage. We're dull. We cannot discern on our own. Just like the people spoken of in Romans chapter 1 that we read as our New Testament reading, we cannot hear your word unless you soften our hearts. And that's what we beg your spirit. Your spirit alone can do it. Not my eloquence, not words that I say. Only you can do that. And Father, we beg you to open our hearts that we will hear from you and we will have an encounter with you this morning and that you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, early in our marriage, before Lynn and I were, either of us were Christians, we were attending a, a small Episcopal church in New Jersey. And although they didn't have the same view of Scripture as we did, they didn't take it literally, they, they didn't uh, see it as the inerrant word of God, they did, to their credit, read a lot of Scripture in their service. They had four Scripture readings in service, and, and more than most Bible-believing evangelical churches. And I remember the first time, the very first time that I was reading in church, it was over 30 years ago, and, and I don't even know if I was a believer or not at the time, but I, I remember my knees were knocking. And it was a small church. There were fewer people there than we have here. And I was used to speaking in public. I spoke in, in public for my job, so that wasn't it. And the, the, part of it was the week before the person who was reading. He was a new reader as well. And in this church, they didn't have pew Bibles. People didn't bring their Bibles. They had a lectern. And the lectern had this big, gigantic Bible. And you would mark your place. They had strings in there. And you'd open to it. And I'd even use a pencil to mark off my, the spot I was reading. And you'd read it. Well, the person who read the week before did not do that. And what he did is he got up there and opened it. And he didn't really know his Bible too well. So he was going and he was flipping here. He was flipping there. He was flipping back and forth. And, and this was a very, you know, a liturgical church. It was very, very quiet and proper. So everyone was silent. And it felt like it was like five minutes. It was probably maybe only 30 seconds. And I could see, I, it was a small church. I was close enough. I could see the beads of sweat on his forehead as he was looking, as he was going through there. So this is what I had in mind when it was my turn to read. But that wasn't the only reason why I was, I was terrified. My knees were knocking. Because the passage that I was reading was the Ten Commandments. 
I was reading God's law. And the, the, the words that, it, as you know, were written by the very finger of God. And, and something, even if I wasn't a believer at the time, there was something about the gravity of the Ten Commandments that, that stuck with me. So I remember trembling coming up there and reading the Ten Commandments, and I got through it. And then I remember the person who was preaching making a comment about the Ten Commandments, and they were talking about how difficult it is for us to keep the Ten Commandments, you know, not to lie, not to kill, not to covet, not to commit adultery, not to use the Lord's name in vain. But then they made this comment, well, at least I haven't made any graven images today. And, the, and, and it's almost like that, that was one of the Ten Commandments that didn't apply anymore. We didn't have to worry about the Second Commandment as, as we read in our confession, making graven images. It was, it was for a primitive people during a primitive time. And this is really the way I felt about it. I said, why do they have idolatry? We don't worship statues. That was way back when. You know, I believe in the evolution of, of, of religion, that you, know, you started as polytheistic and worshiping stones and trees, but then we evolved into monotheistic, and then we're much more, we're much more sophisticated now. But when I became a Christian, and when I grew and my faith grew in maturity, I saw idolatry not as something for the past, but actually probably the primary sin that every one of us commits. I actually found this is probably the core of sins, of every sin that we commit. See, idolatry, in essence, is putting anything, anything, even a good thing, putting it in the place of God. Putting anything that we look to for what only God can provide for us. Anything that absorbs our imagination, anything that inflames our heart more than God. That is an idol. Idolatry is looking to anything other than God himself to give us our identity, to bring meaning into our lives, to give us a purpose for living, really to provide for us a security that only God can provide. An idol is something that we must have. If we don't have it, we cannot go on. And then, again, all these idols, these are good things. They wouldn't be idols. We wouldn't look to them if they were not good things. And some idols that we can have is a successful career. Right? A happy marriage. Those are all good things. A healthy, a loving family. A faithful ministry. These are good things. All good things. But these things become idols when we take these good things out of their place and we make them ultimate things. We make them a thing that I must have above everything else. And we're willing to sacrifice everything else, even our relationship with God himself, to get that idol, to hold on to that idol. And the, the greatest illustration of the idol is the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. You think of him with my precious, my precious. That's what an idol, it reduces us to. The one thing that we must have, and we will sacrifice anyone and anything to get that thing. And the truth is, we are all idolaters. We are all idolaters at one level or another. Now, in case you're, you're thinking, well, well, John, you're kind of exaggerating that. You know, I'm, I'm not like Gollum, I'm not like that. Well, let me ask you a few questions, a few questions that help us to, to, to identify the idols in our lives. And, and you don't have to answer out loud, and you don't have to tell me, you don't have to tell anyone. Just, just think about it. Answer them honestly to yourself, and, and, and let these reveal the idols that we have. So some of these questions are, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? What do you, what do you think about when, when no one else is around you, and you think about these, these are the joys? Is it a vacation? Is it, is it, is it sports? Is it something sinful? What about how you spend your money? I mentioned this last week. You look at someone's checkbook, you can tell what's important to them. What do you spend your money on? Do you spend on things uh, to, to impress other people, to, to build up your image? Do you spend things on, on your own comfort? Here's another one. What is your real daily functional salvation? And that, uh, what, what does this mean? What I mean here is, what do you find your security? 
Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your value? When you're thinking about that, why am I value? What do you ask? Is it, is it my career? Is it my knowledge? Is it something I've done? Where is my security? Is it my bank account? Where's my security? Where's my identity? Where's my value? Here's, a, here's another one. How do you handle unanswered prayer? Where we're all praying for things, things that are desperate. What, what about, you know, you, there, there are people single. What if you're praying for a spouse? I'm praying and I, and I just don't have a spouse. What about health concern? You know, you've got this, 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 this health concern that, that's just distracting you and, and, and you pray, Lord, take it away, take it away. And he doesn't answer. What about, what about a job? You, you, you want to use the gifts that you've training and you can't find that, God, that job and you're praying for it. How do you handle that unanswered prayer? Is there something that's so important to me, something that I must have, something that if I don't have it, I will not I feel significant. Life will not be worth living if I don't get this. To what or to who do you look for? For life-sustaining stability and security and acceptance. See, the bottom line of idolatry is looking to anything, anything that, that I have to have beside Jesus that is, that is taking the title of my heart, that is taking my functional trust, that is my preoccupation, that is my loyalty, my service, my fear, my delight, anything other than God himself, it fits in that case, it is an idol. And you see, it's, it's real easy. It applies to all of us. And we must understand that idolatry is not simply making a grave in them. It's not bowing down to some wooden statue. It's not something limited to the de- distant past. It is a temptation. It is a sin infecting every single one of us. So as we look at this passage, as we look at the folly of idolatry, I want you not to think of a piece of wood. I don't want you to think of a stone. I don't want you to think of a piece of metal. I want you to think about those things that were revealed in this question, this, those questions that I asked for. You know, is it your job? Is it your home? Is it your marriage? Is it your health? Is it your bank account? Is it your reputation? Is it your skills that you have? I want you to think of these things, these good things, and put them in the place of these, where we make these things our ultimate things. I want us to think about these things when we look at this passage, things that we have placed our, our, that have our heart, that we've placed our functional trust. So let's start with verse 9. Let's look at this folly of idolatry. Verses 9 through 11, they, they basically say that idols are nothing. That's, the, that's the, the bottom line. Idols are nothing. They have, they don't profit. They don't, they don't lead to anything of value. They lead to shame. They lead to ultimate terror. That's what these verses are saying. Now, it's not saying that in and of themselves they are bad. No. The wood is, that makes an idol, it's good. God provided. The metal is good. The job is good. The marriage is good. The skills are good. These are all gifts from God. The, good, the problem is when these good things become ultimate things, when they are used in a way that they were not intended by God to be used. So the problem is when we take these good things, and as I said, we make them ultimate things. We put them in a place reserved only for God. The problem is we use them not how God has used them, to, to how God intended them to be used, but how they have never been intended to be used. The problem is when we put them in a position reserved only for God himself. And when we look to these things to give us what only God can do, then they become nothing. Then they do not profit. Then they lead only to shame. Verses 11 to 12 shows us why these things, why these good things can never profit, can never really provide for us what we truly need. Verse 11 says the craftsmen, it says they are only human. The craftsmen are only human. Verse 12 goes on to say that these craftsmen who makes the idols, they become hungry. Their strength fails. It says if he drinks no water, he's going to become faint. See, the, the, the things that we make, ultimate things, the things to, to which we place our, our absolute hope and trust are things that made by us, things that are made by human beings, by men, by weak, frail, 
finite, sinful men. And it's utter folly. It's, it's utter foolishness to expect things that we, ma- we make, made by men, to meet our ultimate and our eternal needs. Verse 13 here shows the impressiveness. Right? Human, human skill and, and human technology are impressive. We're not saying they're not. So it shows the impressiveness of human skill and technology. It talks about the scale of the carpenter to make a figure of a man and the beauty of a man that dwells in a house. So here the, the craftsman is making an idol, an idol in his own image, and he's placing it in a house. He's placing it in a temple. And you see here there is a, um, an attempt to basically mimic God. See, God makes us as humans in his image. And what are we doing? As craftsmen, we're making our gods in our image. And we're placing them in a temple, just like God has placed the temple to meet with us. We are taking our gods in our own image, and we are putting them into the temple. See, we're, we're, it's basically like, think about children. We're like imitating God like children you know, with, with their toys and playthings, imitating their adults. But despite the skill, despite the work, despite the technology of men, notice they're still dependent on God. Still dependent on God for the materials. Look at verse 14. It says he, the, the craftsman, the, the, the man, he cuts down cedars or he chooses cypress tree or an oak. And he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants the cedar and then the rains nourish it. See, the wood for the idol to create the God, it must come from the true God. He's still dependent on God to make this, the, the rain, to make it to grow. See, it's kind of like the joke. You probably heard the joke. A scientist goes up to God and, and, and says, you know, God, we don't need you anymore. We, we can clone life. We can transplant organs. We can do all these things that were considered miraculous. Now, we can do it. So God's laughing at him and says, okay, let's have a little contest. Let's see if you can create a man the way I created a man in, in Genesis, you know, out of the, out of the dust of the grounds. So the scientist says, okay, he reaches down to grab some dirt. And God says, ah, whoa, get your own dirt. You've got to remember everything that we do to, to, to go against God, it comes from God. The foolishness of idolatry is that we are totally dependent on God, even as we attempt to replace him. But it gets even more absurd in, in verses 15 through 17. Here, the, the man takes the piece of wood, again, God's wood, and half of this wood he uses to, to make a fire, to, to, to warm himself and, and to cook bread. So part of it, he's making his fire, and the other half, he says, oh, now I'm going to make a God, and I'm going to worship it. I'm going to bow down and say, deliver me, for you are my God. Does anything seem so ridiculous as this? He knows. He, he just made a fire out of half of it, and now half of it is going to be his, his God. And again, the, the wood is good for its purpose. It's good for making bread. It's good for, for building a fire. It provides warmth. But the utter, utter, utter folly comes in, in looking for this wood to provide what it cannot provide, to provide what only the living God can provide. So the, the, the thing is, idols cannot deliver on the promise. They cannot deliver what they promise to do. They cannot do what we look to them to do. They cannot provide for us this ultimate security, this ultimate purpose, this ultimate Identity, ultimate significance. For this, we must look beyond something we made, beyond ourselves. We must look beyond this world. We must look to the one, to the one who is supernatural, who is transcendent. That is where we find our ultimate purpose, our ultimate security, our ultimate identity. See, trusting in a piece of wood, which half is used to to make a fire and, and the other half is claimed to be a god, is utterly absurd. Utterly absurd. And, and, and we look at it, we, we kind of sneer, we laugh at it. But now substituting those idols that you were thinking of, that were revealed by those questions, put those in. Does this now seem so absurd? I mean, think about your job. Maybe your job is your idol. Can your job, no matter how important your job is, can your job give you eternal life? 
Can it give you security beyond the grave? Can it give you ultimate significance? What about your marriage? Look about you may have a good marriage. No matter how great your marriage is, can your marriage give you eternal life? What about your health? Look at you. Maybe you exercise every day. You, you take vitamins. You eat well. One day you will still die if the Lord tarries. We cannot, we cannot look to our health for ultimate security. See, the idols cannot pr- provide what they promise. And the reason why we don't realize this is because, as the text tells us, our eyes are shut to reality. Our hearts are hardened like stone. And we see this in verses 18 through 20. It says, no one has the discernment to say, half of the wood I have used to make a fire, and half is now my God. See, we see that as, as, as utterly absurd. They don't see that at all. It seems perfectly, perfectly natural. It's because they are blinded. They are deluded. This is exactly what we saw, what Nathan read for us in Romans chapter 1. They, they know God exists, but they refuse to honor him. They refuse to thank him. And because of that, they start building idols. They start, their, their hearts are deluded, and then they can't see the truth. They become foolish. That's what happens. And see, really what happens is the reality about us is we become what we worship. We become what we worship. See, if we worship a, a lifeless uh, statue or a life, we become like that. If we worship the living God, we become like him. See, if we worship only, if, if we think that our worship is only limited to what we can see, what we can touch, uh, the physical and the material world, we become blind to the, to the spiritual and the supernatural realm. And that's the problem with materialism. We think only what we can see is true. And we are completely blind to ultimate reality, which is God. See, idolatry saps us. It saps us of our power. It saps us of our joy. It saps us, really, of rationality. See, it promises everything and delivers nothing because it, it, it breaks us off from the, that connection with the living God. It really leads to bondage and, and ineffectiveness and sin. And at the root of all idolatry, though, at the, if you look at all idolatry, the root of all idolatry is self-worship. Self-worship. It's a desire for us to be our own God. And this is really the root of all sin. This is the sin of our, our first parents when they were tempted by the serpent. Right? What did the serpent say? If you eat of this fruit, you too can be like God. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And that is our temptation. That is what each one of us wants to be. We want to be like God. And that's what's really behind, behind the idolatry. It's an understanding that I made this idol. I made God. They say things like, I mean, think, think about about people who would say, you know, my God would never do such and such. They say, you know, my God, my God is, would, would never uh, send someone to hell. My God would never, uh, whatever it is. They are making their own God. They are creating their own God. That's what we're seeing. See, if, you're, if you create a God, you can control God. And that's basically what we're saying. If you can create God, you can control God. I remember years ago, Jessica, we were reading through... Uh, Romans chapter 1, and we got to the point where it talked about them worshiping, they rejected God and they were worshiping these idols made out of animals and stones and so forth. And, and Jess was saying, you know, why would people do that? And we made this joke, we said, well, say they, they picked a, an animal to be their God, say a turtle, and the turtle was going to be their God. They know the turtle's not their God, but they worship the turtle. But if the turtle does something they don't want to do, they make the turtle into turtle soup, and then they get another God. And this is, the, this is the folly of idolatry. We want to control the God. We are ultimately worshiping ourselves. We are ultimately worshiping ourselves. 
And this is the delusion of idolatry. It's simple, simply self-worship. And we don't even see it as self-worship. Think about our, our current, current idols that we make, our jobs, right? It's something I do, self-worship. Think about a skill that you might have, something that you're good at, an intellect, something I possess, something I can control, self-worship. Think about your marriage. It's, it's something I did. I'm such a great husband. I'm such a great wife. I deserve the credit, self-worship. And we even see this in, in false religion with works righteousness. I am, I'm right with God because of something I did. I'm a good person. I have, the, I have right knowledge. I have right attitudes. I suffered. I prayed. <clears throat> Whatever it is, uh, you know, I gave. These are all idols of self-worship, idols of something we do. And we're, we're hopeless narcissists. We're, we're idolaters that worship ourselves. <clears throat> so what is the answer? What is the answer to this idolatry that plagues each one of us? What's the solution? What's the hope to, to free us from the bondage of idols? Well, we see the answer in verses 6, 7, and 8 of this chapter. The answer is an encounter with the living God. Encounter with the living God. So let's just walk through these verses, verse by verse, to see the solution. Verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In this one verse, in this one verse that we just read, we see where our true identity lies. We see where our eternal security lies. We see where our ultimate significance lies. Our ultimate identity comes from the Lord, comes from Yahweh. Notice that it's, that it's here. It's Lord in, in, in all capitals. That's the covenant name. That's Yahweh. And what it's saying is we are in covenant with him. He is our king. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of his covenant people. He is our true allegiance. In him we have our identity. We also he's our security. He's our eternal security. He is our redeemer. It says the redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of the Lord of hosts is the Lord of the heavenly hosts. As Chris Tomlin said, he is the Lord of, of angel armies. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He is our security, our redeemer. Also notice that we see here shadows of the Trinity in this, in this chapter. This verse talks about the Lord and the King of Israel and his Redeemer, who is the Lord of hosts. And in verse 3, this, this God says that he puts his spirit on his people. So you see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this one chapter. We see our God who existed in, in all eternity as a Trinity. We see him revealed here in this Old Testament, this Old Testament people. It's amazing. And our security ultimately comes because we are united to Christ. That is where our security comes from. We, on our own, we cannot handle things, but we are united to the living God in Christ. And in addition to our identity and security, we have our ultimate, security, our ultimate significance in him. And why is our ultimate significance in him? Because Christ is our ultimate reality. Christ is the first and the last. Besides him, there is no other God. See, our God is in a class all by himself. He is wholly other. He is different from all created beings. He is the creator. All else is the creation. All else is the creature. He is not part of the creation. He is outside the creation. He is above the creation. And notice the illusion how, how Jesus is describing the book of Revelation. Remember, Jesus says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see an allusion to this part here in Isaiah. And everything else in this world is contingent. I mean, that's basically the thing. Everything is contingent. Everything in this world is, is transient. It's, it's changeable. Everything is, is fading away and connecting to anything else, making an idol out of anything else, whether it's a person, whether it's an organization, whether it's a cause, 
whether it's a nation, that will ultimately fail. We all do that. We want to be attach ourselves to, to a school or attach ourselves to our organization or to our country. All of those things will ultimately fail us. It's only Christ. Christ is a solid rock. He is the foundation. As we sing on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other grounds is sinking sand. So no idol can provide the permanence that our souls long for. Ultimate meaning and the ultimate purpose can only be found in him. Moving on to verse 7, we see this theme of God's utter uniqueness continue. But verse 7, we also see our ultimate purpose as God's people. Let me look at verse 7. It says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. See, God declares his uniqueness with the question. He says, who is like me? And the obvious answer is none. None is like you. This is God's message to the world. He says, I am unique. I am holy. I am utterly different than all else. And this is, this is his mission. This is God's mission to declare himself to the world, to declare his glory to the world. And this is our mission. This is the mission of his people. We too are to declare his uniqueness. As this verse says, let him, let God's servant proclaim. This is our purpose, to proclaim God's glory. See, our purpose is not to pursue our own self-interest. It's not to maximize our own profit. It's not to maximize our own comfort or pleasure or fame. Our purpose is to proclaim Christ, proclaim his greatness. This is the reason why, as the text says, he is anointed an ancient people, a covenant people, to proclaim his greatness. And how how do we know what to proclaim? Do we proclaim our own opinions Do we proclaim uh, what we want to happen? No, we proclaim his word. We proclaim the promises found in his word. We proclaim this, we proclaim this to all. We proclaim this to the entire world. So our mission is simple. It is to glorify God. It is to make his greatness and the acts known to the world. And my friends, could there be, can you think of a higher calling? Is there a higher vocation, a higher calling than this? This is the calling that, that we have as, as Christians. Think, think whatever your job is. And, and, and it could be important. There are important jobs. I remember when I first got out of college, I was making pumps that were, were used to, to, uh, for power industries and, and ships. These were important, things that were necessary for modern infrastructure. But modern infrastructure is one day will fail. Building pumps will not be used for eternity. But the purpose that is given to us as every Christian is to make God known, to glorify him. And he has infinite power, infinite significance. And why? Because anything that we do, anything that we do for him is have ultimate significance, ultimate power, because he is ultimate. He has ultimate, uh, he has ultimate glory. And just like any task, no matter how great when done uh, in and of itself is ultimately meaningless, any, likewise, any task, no matter how small, how humble, how obscure, if it's done for Christ, it has ultimate value. And this is something that no idol can give to us. This significance comes only from God, only from the living God. Finally, in verse 8, God graciously provides assurance for his people. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. And here we see the comfort that God provides his frightened people throughout this section in Isaiah that we're seeing. He tells them that he tells us not to fear, not to be afraid. And why are we not to be afraid? What is the reason that he gives us? What, 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 how, how does he give us this reason? 
He is our confidence. He gives us the confidence. Because he has told us in his word what will happen. He's told us. He, even this very prophecy was prophesied 150 years before. And that gives us confidence as we see that God's word fulfilled. So God told us what would happen. We cannot trust in idols. We trust in the sovereign God, the Lord of the universe. In him we can trust. There is no other God beside him. He is our rock. He is a foundation in Jesus Christ. In Christ, he is the cure. He is the only cure for our, for our all too common temptation to idolatry. He is our identity. He's our security. He is our significance. As we sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that each one of us are idolatrous. Each one of us is far from you. Each one of us really wants to have nothing to do with you. But Father, we thank you for your grace. Your grace that cuts through the idolatry, the grace that forgives us. And Father, I do pray for each here. I pray if there are any here who do not know that grace, that you will change that now. You will call us to yourself. You will give us your comfort, your peace. We pray it all in Jesus' name.